At RIV, we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like Him. We are committed to being gospel-focused and motivated while we are biblically holistic and humble. As a church family, we want to be in and in the community while being a place that is multi and next generational. As we reflect Jesus in our words and actions, we are united in and honoring diversity. And in all of this, we will prioritize relational and missional discipleship. As we look to the next generation, we have a loving, selfless, always present, and ever caring example in Jesus. Let's be that in our community. All right. How's everybody doing today? Beautiful day. Spring is here. Very good to be here. The other day I was reading a story. It's about a young British software engineer. His name is Josh. And he enjoyed doing the uh, daily New York Times crossword puzzle with his girlfriend each morning. And so about six months ago, he decided to create Uh, his own online word game for her as a gift. Uh, She loved the game so much that she decided to share it with her family and friends, and they shared it with their family and friends. This guy's name is Josh Wardle, and that's how Wardle was born. His last name is W-A-R-D-L-E. On November 1st, Wardle had 90 players. This was like five and a half months ago. On January 1st, it hit 300,000. One week later, almost 3 million people played Wordle. It grew times 10 in one week. Um, And then by the end of January, Josh Wordle had sold Wordle for millions of dollars to, you guessed it, the New York Times, where his puzzle now sits right next to the New York Times daily crossword puzzle in their online edition. Now, why is Wordle so popular? Um, several reasons. One is it's it's pretty simple game. Um, you're trying to guess uh, a, a basic five-letter word is kind of the idea. You enter your first guess, and then it tells you which letters you have right, and it kind of lets you know which ones you can't use anymore. You just kind of work your way down through there. Usually it only takes a couple of minutes unless, you know, the word is, I don't know, rupee or something, and then uh, you might be struggling there. Uh, There's only one word per day. And so in a world where people binge everything, I think the scarcity of only that one word per day is kind of strangely appealing. But the biggest reason, um, the the week that it exploded from 300,000 to 3 million um, was because of this uh, little deal right here. Now, once you complete a Wordle, uh, most of you have seen one of these before, right? Yeah. Um, you, uh, this share button immediately pops up. And so you can share your Wordle story on social media or text it to your friends or whatever. This is my progression from this morning. This was this morning's Wordle, uh, how I did. So the yellow ones are the ones that I had the letter right, but in the wrong spot. And then I had them in the right spot. And it took me four guesses to get through it. Um, these little emoji squares are all over Twitter and Facebook and, and everywhere you, you look. And so people are able to share their daily result without revealing the actual answer to the puzzle. Um, because the first wor- rule of Wordle is you can talk about Wordle, 
uh, but never, ever, ever post the actual answer to the puzzle, right, on social media. In fact, the guy running the slides back there, he's like, you're not going to give away the answer today, right? He's like, people with pitchforks will come and get, he literally said that to me, and I was like, I'm not going to say. Now, people are very, very emotionally attached to their Wordle results. Um, A couple of folks here, um, this is Jessica the Uh, All-Powerful. She she got it in two guesses, and she wrote, I am the queen. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, Toby, uh, this was the week that the word was shake, and so he had it like close. He was like, shave, shame. And then he said, this is the worst day of my life. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> yeah, and then, and, and, you know, we have these sort of polarized things. So let's think about this phenomenon for a moment. Why are millions of people, literally millions of people every day, taking the time to share this little icon? Author Simon Sinek says, the most basic human desire is to feel like you belong. And I think that's what we're seeing here is a thirst for connection. We all want to be seen, to be known, to belong. We're not meant to be alone. In our current series here at Riverview, we've introduced our new mission statement at Riv. We invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. We invite Everyone, And part of how we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus is to invite them, period, right? So they can be seen and known and they can belong because for many people, and maybe this is your story, belong is the pathway to belief. The core value that we're looking at here today is in and in the community, um, which I did not create that language. It, it kind of felt like word problem for me at a while, but I, I think I've got a handle on it here now. Community comes from a Latin word that means share or, or common. And so in the community, meaning that we authentically share our lives together, and in the community, meaning we intentionally go together and share our lives with everyone else. And at times, these values in the church can be at odds with each other. Um, Sometimes we're so focused on the one another piece that we forget our call to to reach lost people. And sometimes we're preoccupied with pushing outward and we neglect the needs of, of those maybe in our own church family. In my experience, these two values, they work best when they happen together. When mission draws us close together... And then our closeness fuels our desire to go love and serve others. And it sort of just cycles forward that way. Jesus, as always, is our example in this. In fact, in 1 John 4.19, it says, We love because he first loved us. Right? Our desire to love and our ability to do so is rooted in Christ's sacrificial love for us and his example of how he lived his life. Jesus simultaneously lived his life in community and in the community, not as separate strategies, but as his integrated lifestyle, right? And so he authentically shared life and did life with this close circle of kind of 20-ish friends and followers called his disciples. And as they did that, that group Every day, what they did was like, let's go over here. Let's go into the community, right? 
They intentionally entered the lives of broken people over and over and over again. So we're going to take a look today at one example of how Jesus did this. If you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open uh, your Bible or turn or tap or scroll your way over to Mark chapter 5. The verses um, will also be up on the screen. And so Mark is the second of four gospel accounts. It's maybe two-thirds of the way through the Bible there, right uh, after Matthew, right before Luke and John. In the first four chapters of Mark's account, Jesus is moving throughout the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and, and so you're up sort of in this region up here uh, where it says Galilee on the north side. That's where cities like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Nazareth uh, were, were located there. And he's with his group of, of community there, his disciples. And, and he's healing and, and there's teaching and discussion and sharing parables. And of course, Jesus, right, he's just doing and saying amazing things. And then he says to his crew one night after the sunset, hey, let's go over to the other side of the sea. Now for Jewish people in the time of Jesus, open waters uh, represented or was symbolic of chaos and death and the abyss and hell. I mean, that was what they, they, they thought of when they're out on open waters. And it goes way back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. There was chaos. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And so before God spoke order into the chaos, the earth was a dark and watery place. And so when you think about Noah and the flood or the Egyptians chasing after the Jews and the parting of the Red Sea and them all, the bottom of the sea, that dark place, just that's what it represented uh, for the Jews. In fact, many of you maybe are familiar with this story here in Mark 5. At the end of Mark 4, as they're crossing over, um, this massive storm hits. And the disciples are terrified. And then Jesus verbally rebukes the weather. <laughs> and everything becomes calm. And we pick up the story here in verse 1 of Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Now, uh, life with Jesus, by the way, is a little on the side. I mean, when they got over after the storm and it was overnight and everything, I'm sure when they got, there's still like a residence inn on this side of the sea, Jesus, or something. I don't even have time to do my wordle. And here's this guy coming out of the tombs, right? All of a sudden, scholars debate exact location that Mark is referring to. Um, some will say it's near kind of where Hippus is there. Some will say more kind of where the Jordan River hits. Uh, it's it's, it's one of those two places, but it's on the south kind of west part, southeast part of the Sea of Galilee, and the worldview and the world on the south side of the Sea of Galilee was completely different than the worldview and the world on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. What had happened was in about 250 BC, after the death of Alexander the Great, the Greeks made an intentional attempt to populate the world with their worldview, right? And the way they did it was kind of like church planning, except the churches that they planted were full cities. 
And the worldview was called humanism, okay? Humanism is basically the belief that man is the measure of all things. That was their way of life. Huge focus on individual beauty and intellect and physical prowess and sexuality and achievement. Very prevalent worldview in our country today as well. Very much the opposite of the Jewish worldview where God is the measure of all things, right? And the focus is on community and serving one another and living sacrificially and simply together. And so as part of the Greek expansion, you can see here, they built a bunch of these cities in in this region called the Decapolis there. Decapolis just means what you think it means, 10 cities, right? And, And they just plopped these Greek cities down in the middle of northern Israel or sort of that region uh, kind of to the east there. And these modern cities all had the same DNA, the same imprint, the same city plan. They had uh, theaters and uh, arenas and heated pools and spas and paved roads. You can see here, there's a structure to each city. That's the main road going through. And they had a, an east-west and a north-south road. That picture is Betshan, which is the, 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 the Decapolis city that is the nearest to the Sea of Galilee. It's about 15 miles to the south of the Sea of Galilee. You're looking down into the valley where the Sea of Galilee is, and you can feel just the, the sort of modern uh, sophistication, even though the city was built a couple thousand years ago. Very, very different. They had massive temples to multiple Greek gods in these cities as well. The, uh, different from the life of the Jews who, who were uh, tradespeople, fishermen, Farmers, right, in small villages, and they worshiped one God, Yahweh, and they had a small synagogue in each of their cities. And the first time I visited Israel, um, we spent three days hiking in northern, uh, that area around where Jesus spent most of his life, the north side of the Sea of God. Very, very rigorous. We were tired, it was a lot of work. And then on the fourth day, we visited Betshan. And I remember my first thought when we walked in there was like, oh, yes, this is more like it, right? Even though it's just a partially excavated ancient city, it kind of felt like home. I kind of half expected there'd be a McDonald's up here on the corner in the city. And so when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, he was intentionally choosing at least for a few days, for them to step together out of their familiar way of life and go together to Las Vegas or Manhattan. And it seriously would have been that dramatic of a difference for them. That feel was totally different. Let's go in community together into the community. And by the way, after Jesus died... That's pretty much what all the disciples, that's what their lives were like. That's what they ended up doing. They left Jerusalem. They left Israel as communities of people to go be Jesus in these Greek cities and other places around the world. And so they survived the 12-mile trip across the Sea of Galilee, Galilee, barely. And uh, sure enough, when they get there, the um, welcoming committee on the other side is this demon-possessed man. We're going to call him Kenny, okay? Kenny, the crazy demon-possessed guy. If your name is Kenny, I apologize. Uh, I just made that up. So, um, and this guy, he lives in the cemetery, and he comes running up to Jesus. Now, demon possession, what, what is that? Demons are fallen angels 
who act on behalf of the devil in an attempt to interfere with God's work in the world and to distract and discourage and frustrate and speak lies to God's people. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The enemy is not other people, but it's against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And as followers of Christ, we need to remember who the enemy is. Sin, Satan, and his minions, and death are our enemies, and they are real. And in this case, this agent of the devil, this demon, or it turns out there's multiple ones, they have a firm hold on on Kenny's life here. Verse 3 says this, he, this is Kenny, lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain. Because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Man, think about what it must have felt like to be Kenny. I mean, his pain and misery, this is just torture. His life has become right? He lives in a cemetery. He's surrounded by death. He's in chains. There's nobody there. They've tried to come and help him, but they can't. So he's isolated. He's neither in nor in the community. And so he's alone and he's crying. He's, he's physically harming himself. He's cutting himself. And when people try to get, he just lashes out and attacks anyone who tries to get close. Maybe you've known somebody or been somebody that has had that as your pattern to hide your pain. Now, most people don't wear their pain the same way Kenny did, right? We hide it, or at least we try to. Uh, I was reading this article about Katie Meyer. She is a vibrant and cheerful 22-year-old. She's the goalie of the Stanford Women's National Championship soccer team. She's preparing to graduate with a degree in international business from Stanford University after she finishes her soccer career. Her senior year is happening right now. Two weeks ago, she died of suicide. And no one had seen any warning signs of those inner demons that she was wrestling with. In fact, her dad said in an interview I was watching on TV, it was heartbreaking. He said, you know, you can love someone fully but you may not know or understand them fully. We all want to be seen, to be known, to belong. And so Jesus shows up. They go across, and he has this interaction with Kenny. When Kenny saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For Jesus had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name, Jesus asked. My name is Legion, he answered to Jesus, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. So this is kind of a Uh, an unsettling story here. What's happening is that it's not really Kenny speaking to Jesus. It's this demon or these demons inside of Kenny 
Legion is, is their name. And, and, and again, on the one hand, this is kind of scary, right? To think, okay, a demon could gain this kind of control over a person. This was pretty normal in Jesus's ministry. If you read the gospels, he encountered a number of different demon-possessed people. But again, Satan is real and he is our enemy. And on the other hand, do we have anything to fear? As you read this, amen, no. Look what happens here. Jesus is not impressed with these demons at all. In fact, they are begging him for mercy. He is absolutely in complete control of this situation. In Christ, there's no power they have once Jesus shows up. They're terrified of him. They beg Jesus. They're like, don't torment us. Don't, don't, Don't make us leave. And it keeps going. And in verse 11, it says, A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. And so he gave them permission. I love that. And the unclean spirits came out of Kenny and entered the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Now, I would love to see the YouTube video of that, of 2,000 snorting, oinking, the dust flying, and the sound of that rumbling down the hillside into the Sea of Galilee, and then a few seconds later, silence. They're gone. Jesus' disciples must have been just standing there like, oh man, right? From their perspective, where did Jesus just send these demons to the abyss? to hell, right back where they belong. For Jewish people, pigs are unclean. You're not even allowed to touch one. And so right to the bottom of the sea, they go. I think it's even more than symbolic, right? Verse 14, the men who tended them, imagine being one of those guys. Um, You go back to the guy who owns the pigs. Well, Chuck, um, (laughs) you're not gonna believe what happened today. (laughs) Your pigs are gone. Yeah, yeah. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, and they saw the man, this is Kenny, who had been demon-possessed, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs, and they began to beg him And they're talking about Jesus. They began to beg Jesus to leave their region. And so when these people show up to investigate, Kenny is there with Jesus and he's sitting. When was the last time he had sat down for any reason at all and rested? He's dressed, it says, which implies he had been undressed for a long time. And he's in his right mind, which is evidence that something miraculous had happened here. Everybody knew about Kenny. And now it's a different Kenny. And the reaction of the people just fascinates me. First of all, no one seems happy for Kenny, right? Why isn't there a massive celebration? He's back. Go find his parents. It's really Kenny. It's not this weird, crazy guy, right? And second of all, they beg Jesus. You think it's going to say they beg him to stay. No, they ask him to leave. An hour ago, he just rid their area of these evil forces and saved Kenny's life. 
And now they're asking him to leave. And the crazy thing is, that's exactly what he does. Verse 18, it just says, as he was getting into the boat, he's like, you want me to leave? I'll leave. Fine. The man who had been demon-possessed, he begged Jesus earnestly that he might remain with him. Can I please go back with you guys in the boat? Jesus did not let him. Isn't that interesting? Verse 19. I mean, you want the story to say, hey, Jesus, can I go back? And Jesus goes, absolutely. You're going to fit right in with my crew here, right? I got the tax collector. I got the zealot. I just need the the recently demon-possessed guy. That's going to complete the circle here, right? We got this is my team, team Jesus. Jesus did not let him but told Kenny, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so Kenny went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. Now, this is just my opinion. It's just James' speculation here. But I think the reason Jesus says no is because he's staying focused on his mission. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and the Jewish disciples that he is building in the community there, those are the people that he is training to someday and go bring the gospel out, not just to Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth, also to the Greek cities, to the Decapolis. That's his focus. One day, that's going to get there, but right now, it's early on. He's in Mark 5 here. He's got a different, and, and his mission's going to expand, but, but not right now. And so instead, he says, I think you can make a difference right now with your story. Go home, which turns out to be the Decapolis, probably not the whole thing, because the whole Decapolis is like the size of like the lower peninsula. So one of whatever city he was, go back to Las Vegas, Kenny, and share your story. Tell your Greek family and friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the crazy thing is, it works. They were all amazed It doesn't say they all decided to become followers of Jesus, but they're definitely interested and impressed by Jesus and curious. I think people tend to be more interested and curious about Jesus than we give them credit for, right? Now, I wonder what kind of gospel impact that Kenny had there. I would love to know that. How many people ended up following Jesus because he couldn't stop telling them about how much the Lord had done for him? Mark 7 gives us a glimpse. This is two chapters later, verse 31. It says, again, leaving the region of Tyra, Jesus went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. So he's back in that area. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking. This guy's a deaf mute and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And Jesus does it. And he heals the guy. And in verse 36, it says, he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. And they were astonished and said, he has done everything well. Did you catch what happens there? The shift? The Decapolis has a different feel here, right? Two chapters earlier, they're begging Jesus to leave. Now they're saying, please lay your hands on our friend. And Jesus is the one who's like, you guys got to keep quiet about this. So they're like, no way. We're going to tell everybody we know about this. Friends of Kenny, perhaps? We don't know. It all began 
with a group of followers of Jesus who got in the boat together to go to a place where people were broken. They went to the other side of the sea in community. And so I just have two challenges for us here today. And the first one is that. Be in authentic gospel community. This simply means finding a group of people who sincerely aim to be like Jesus and do it together with them. And this is a choice. You might stumble into one of those communities, but it won't kind of happen accidentally for very long. There's intent and effort and vulnerability and humility involved. I would encourage you to lay down any romantic notions you might have about getting connected with the perfect biblical community, because once you join, it won't be perfect anymore. Um, (laughs) We really do stumble together in this in this community thing. It will require you to be around people that you might not otherwise choose to be around. That's what a family is, right? In some ways, it feels easier to not do this. But it's better when we do. In fact, we need each other to grow in Christ. For many years here at RIV, our primary strategy for intentional biblical community has been the life groups. I'm in a life group, I lead one, I help lead the ministry. I've seen some incredible fruit in, in our life groups over the years. As we've been reimagining a bunch of things here over the past few months, we've decided this fall we're, we're going to be launching a, a, some different kinds of groups here at RIV. We're calling them RIV Communities. See what we did there? Um, just there it is, that's what it is. Communities here at RIV. A RIV Community... It's a mid-sized group of 25 to 35-ish people that will be led by four to six trained ministers. Feel a little bit more like kind of home church kind of thing. Gathering regularly for the purpose of growing as disciples of Jesus. Same purpose that we have had with the life groups. The gatherings will include biblical discussion and sharing life stories, and interacting with what's going on in our culture. How does it relate to what's happening in in the biblical text? Some of communities will share share meals together, do communion together, do missional stuff together. Lots of different discipleship pathways will be available. Right now, we're in the process of building out the leadership teams and the location for these groups in preparation for a fall lunch. So if, if you're interested in in helping to lead one of those RIV communities or helping in the building process, would you reach out to me directly? I would love to connect with you and, and, and kind of see if there's a way we can get you plugged in. You can find me after the service or write on your connect form or, or go to the info center, email me, whatever you want. If you're interested in joining a RIV community, um, sit tight for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months here. We'll have more on that as we kind of have more specific plans that unfold But please do be in prayer as we aim to create different kinds of community spaces here at RIV. The challenge is for all of us as individuals, and we also need to own it collectively as a church family to be in gospel community, whether it's a RIV community or a life group or a breakfast Bible study or a ministry team or a restoration group or a campus fellowship. Every follower of Jesus Christ needs other people to be transparent with, to be authentic with. We need to be in community somewhere. And then the second challenge 
is be in the community with your gospel-centered community. Whatever your community is, be on mission somehow for the gospel. We don't withdraw from the world as followers of Jesus. We go represent Christ as ambassadors to the world. And that means you get in your boat together and you go over to the Decapolis. And there may be some things that you might have to overcome together. There's going to be some storms. The people on the other side might not be super receptive. In fact, they may say, get your Jesus and go back in the boat and go back, get away from here, right? And when I say go together, I really do mean that. It's very unwise for a Christian to wander the Decapolis alone. A lot of scholars, by the way, think that that's the prodigal son story, that the place that he went to, the, uh, the, the, the faraway city or whatever was the Decapolis or something like it. And that's kind of one of the points of the story. We go together because it enables us to be in the community while protecting us from being seduced by the community, right? And that's a very real danger that we face as followers of Christ. We are to be the distinct presence of Jesus, the aroma of Christ in the broken world. Sometimes we can blend in in a way that there's just no difference between the Christians and the folks that have not yet decided to follow Christ. Now, what does that look like specifically? That's going to have lots of different outcomes for different people in this room. There's some places where the need is obvious, right? The Bible speaks of, of specific intent for Christians to move into the world of the widow, the, the orphan, the prisoner, the sick, the poor. Those people groups are named specifically in the Bible. Um, and we are, as a church family, we must go to those people. The, the Bible compels us to do it. That's how we choose our strategic partner. partners, like Alex was saying earlier. We, we, we've intentionally said we want to be connected with the Ronald McDonald House because they have a ministry where there's sick people involved and families of sick people. We, we, we do the partnership with Back to Back because they care for orphans and poverty-stricken people. We, we have a partnership with the, the, the uh, chaplain at the Ingham County Jail. All of those are very, very in, uh, intentional strategic choices. And at the same time, we need to recognize that whether they project it outwardly or not, every single person that we encounter needs Jesus Christ. That could be your roommates or your gamer friends or your golfer buddies or your Wordle pals or whatever. I have a friend who was telling me that his son had not texted him for any reason for months and months and months. And then he started playing Wordle. And now every day, they, have, they use that. That's their connection point. And it's a, it's a touch. And I, I've been doing the same thing. I, I've been playing. I'm a words guy. So I've been playing words with friends for years. And that's a Scrabble online game. It has a little chat function in there. And there's five or six people that I stay in touch with and pray for that I never see. <laughs> and they're scattered all around. They're old friends. And they live about. And it's just really cool. Today, after the service, <clears throat> a bunch of us are gathering together in the chapel to pray. Um, for Ukraine. Um, prayer is one of the ways we move into the community. Um, maybe we can't get there physically. A lot of you, um, most of us, will not get on a plane and fly over to Ukraine to be physically present there, although some in our community may end up doing that. We have some folks who have some connections there. Um, but we can always go there in prayer, right? 
And you're welcome to join us. We'll be in the chapel at 1130, just out and left and left. And you're welcome to join us for prayer today. And once we've prayed, we need to go. And we need to see people. And we need to listen. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what's really going on to find out what's behind the facade that all of us wear when we interact in sort of these safe settings and and get into what's, uh, in my role, I have the privilege of hearing people share their life story in lots of different settings. And every single time the person sharing their story, they share something that completely surprises me. A, A challenge that they're facing that I would have never imagined. And it's also the way God is working in their life through some of those things. We all want to be seen, to be known, to be long. Be like Kenny. Share the story of how God has changed your life, of how he has had mercy on you, and know that Jesus will do the heavy lifting. I think the disciples were pretty glad when that demon-possessed guy came out of the tombs that Jesus was standing in between him and them, right? He changes lives. He's the one. We love because he first loved us. He's with us as we go. We're gonna move into a time uh, of more worship through singing here together as a church family. Before we do that, I wanna introduce you to my friend, Laura. Uh, She is gonna share a little bit of her story um, with you this morning of her experience uh, of being in community, of being in the community. Laura is um, uh, a leader in our, over at our MSU venue. You may recognize her if you've watched our online services or if you're uh, participating online today. She has been one of the hosts there. And so she's gonna share a little bit of her perspective. And then uh, once she is finished, we're gonna go ahead and stand and sing some more together. A lot of times it's us taking the initiative and you can't necessarily just sit around and wait for someone to be real with you and open up to you. Like sometimes you have to take the risk and put yourself out there. It's really scary to be real and then not receive realness in return. And that has really shaken me at times. I want to know and be known, right? These are like core desires that we have as people. It's really hard then to kind of put what feels like a real self out there And now if that person doesn't respond well, like now it's not just that they rejected a facade and they didn't just reject a persona that I created, they rejected me. And so there's a lot of opportunity, I I guess, to be hurt. But that's why I always come back to if a Christian community is made up of people who are defined in Christ, I'm not necessarily looking to community to define me. I'm not looking to community to save me. I'm looking to community as a space where I just experience more of Jesus. Yes, this kind of community we're talking about, we call it messy, right? That is all these broken people together being broken. But at the same time, if we're like all driven by this innate desire to like be one with the Lord and have my identity in Christ, then actually like we have, like we're empowered to love well. And I think there's actually so much freedom in that, that like now there's this safety Right? Because if, if they're committed to loving me the way I am, and I'm committed to loving them the way they are, then there's, there isn't a fear, right? We can come to one another confidently and, and with this idea that like, 
this community as a whole is hidden in Christ. And you know what? Even for those times that the messiness really does come through and we fail each other because we will, we're still secure in Christ. Every time we reconcile, we're declaring this victory in Christ when we love well in spite of these, these weaknesses and our brokenness. And that is like the gospel in action. And I think that's just it. You just kind of, you speak truth to one another and you act accordingly. If this person's been forgiven by Christ, then I should forgive them too. When we think about Jesus, so much of what he did for us is a sacrificial love. He did that for everyone. And we look at scripture, it's just clear that like he just like busted open the doors and said, everyone is welcome here. And so I think if Jesus did that, <laughs> maybe, maybe it sets this precedent that I should too. There's like a dignity in every person because they were created by God. If Jesus died for everyone, no matter their life experience, no matter where they've been and, and who they are even now, every person's story, every person's time, like I want to know it. I want to be a part of it. Like that to me is part of why community is so important to be a part of. I feel like I have this core question of just, am I loved, right? Or am I lovable? That's like way worse, right? Like, am I worth someone loving? And I was realizing that a lot of times in my relationships, I was asking that question instead of coming into the conversation knowing I'm loved. Like the Bible tells me that, Jesus has told me that. And so out of that safety, out of that rootedness, like I am a person who's loved. I can come and be real with you and honest with you and love freely, right? Because I already have my safekeeping. I feel free to love because I know that I'm already loved. And so I'm not asking questions like that. I'm not making people into a God in my life to tell me if I'm loved. And instead I can then just go and be with them. And if I'm rejected, like, yeah, that totally hurts, but it doesn't have to wreck me and it doesn't have to shake me or my faith.